there's a lot of concern with the process by which a product is made rather than the impact that it will have on human health or on the environment. Um, and so I think that, it, you know, a forward-looking approach would be process agnostic, right? We, we shouldn't really care how we arrive at the creation uh, of a new product, whether that be through CRISPR or th some through, a, uh, through some other um, gene editing process, right? What should matter is the, the impact that it will actually make. The bioeconomy, what is it? And why are we talking about it on China Talk? What's more, does America need a dash of industrial policy to support it? To discuss, we have on Ryan Fedashik, research fellow at CSET and adjunct at CNAS, as well as Gigi Granval, immunologist and professor at Johns Hopkins. The report we're going to be discussing today was funded by OSEA, um, the Air Force's Office of Commercial and Economic Analysis, which supports the Office of the Secretary of Defense in assessing commercial and economic risks to the defense industrial base. And this episode in particular was brought to you on China Talk Today by CNAS. After recording this show, Ryan joined the State Department and disclaimer that the views he expressed on this episode are his own. Ryan and Gigi, welcome to China Talk. Gigi, what is biotech? What is biotechnology? Well, um, I mean, it's a useful application of biology in its most general sense. So um, the biotechnologies, uh, we, we are accustomed to thinking of them like medical biotechnologies. Um, the COVID experience has demonstrated that vaccines are an amazing biotechnology, but there are biotechnologies that are not medical as well. For instance? Well, they're, they're, it's possible to use biology to make things that we eat um, and uh, not just farming, but uh, making uh, beer or making um, impossible burgers. So burgers that, uh, that taste like meat, but are not actually meat. Um, it's possible to use biotechnologies to make building materials. Um, it's possible to use biotechnologies to do mining instead of using um, caustic chemicals. Uh, you're, it's possible to use um, biology to do the work for you. And the bioeconomy. When did this phrase become a thing? Um, so the bio, when did the bioeconomy become a thing? I think it became a thing when people realized that this was the technology that's going to drive us, that's going to drive economies in this century. And, um, and realizing that in order to have um, businesses that rely on biology and to lead in this, in this uh, world, you're going to need to have uh, investments in the ST development and the workforce and all these things to be able to sustain and grow businesses that rely on biotechnology. And the sort of impetus for people realizing that, you know, this is something that's going to be particularly relevant in the 21st century. Was this um, sort of technological breakthroughs, regulatory breakthroughs? What were the what were the kind of building blocks for more and more folks to get convinced that this is something um, really important on the horizon? I think for some decades now, people have been really um, thinking that that biotechnology has tremendous power, um, but we haven't been able to really harness it. And I think every year that goes by, uh, people think, oh, well, you've said that about bio before, that it's going to be super powerful. But every year, it does become more useful. The tools are being created to make it more powerful. So I think 
Um, when you look back in the 70s, when people were starting to say, yes, biology is the future, uh, we look back at the tools that they were able to use at that time and think, well, those are pretty rudimentary uh, now in 2022. But um, but yes, we've made a lot of progress over this time. And uh, a lot of the dreams of the 1970s and 80s for biology are finally getting to be realized. Can we get an example? Uh, a lot of things that um, that are possible. Well, so some of the tools that biology can use, like um, before, uh, like building blocks of of um, of biology. So everybody is familiar with DNA, and you have a certain sequence, and every DNA is common across uh, plants and animals. And um, in a certain sequence, uh, codes for the organism. And uh, it used to be that you could read biology, read DNA pretty well, but now um, you're able to also write DNA a lot better. And, and so you can, for example, uh, synthesize an entire virus um, in, in the laboratory. And this has incredible, useful qualities that you can design a vaccine. Um, of course, there's also security risks for this too. Brian, how do beets explain the bioeconomy? So in Champagne, France, there's this biorefinery uh, called the Bazancourt Pomacle uh, facility that processes like 3 million tons of beets a year. Uh, and there's a, a surprising amount of stuff you can do with sugar beets, which I think illustrates uh, the various stages of bioprocessing that Gigi's been talking about. Uh, you can take beets and break them down into sugar. You can use that sugar for cooking or for fuel. Uh, you can break the sugar and other beet by byproducts down into um, lignans, which are uh, polymers that you can use then in animal feed or, or you can mix to create concrete. Um, you can break those lignans further down into acids and proteins that you can use to make nylon and other materials. Uh, and really, there are several questions that... Uh, are embedded in this process. What are you doing with the waste from the beets? How are you harvesting and replanting the seeds? How are you growing bigger, better beets that give you more sugar and more lignin? Uh, and really, uh, biotechnology it, at its current stage is about trying to answer those questions and trying to create bigger, better beets. And that sounds great. Um, why do we need a national strategy for it? I know I sound like Dwight Schrute over here or something, but um, <laughs> no, because there are so many other, there's so many other applications uh, that span, you know, things that go well beyond beats that extend into food, medicine, materials, energy, um, industries that we can use to, to solve some of the country's most wicked challenges. For instance, for instance, um, you know, I, I think that there are a few discrete problems that you know, the Biden administration's focused in on. Climate is one of them. Uh, the economy is another. Uh, public health and, and trying to manage the COVID-19 response is another. Biotechnology is central to answering all of those, right? In terms of climate, uh, we need alternative, cleaner sources of fuel. Uh, we've been trying to subsidize and, and bring from nothing uh, a biofuels industry in this country for decades. Um, and I think synthetic biology can actually help with scaling up those efforts, driving down costs, potentially making this a really competitive industry. Uh, on food, I think it's obvious, right? We can eat beets. Uh, you know, my, my heritage is Ukrainian. Uh, Got to do it all the time. But uh, there are other foods we can, 
we can grow and eat too, not just beans. So there's something for everyone. But, um, you know, uh, economically, though, I think there's the greatest promise. Uh, you know, we shouldn't make this all about risk uh, or trying to mitigate the next pandemic, although that is a crucial component. Uh, there are just so many opportunities to create stuff we use every day. Uh, the clothes I'm wearing now could be used with, you know, beet nylon. Uh, uh, maybe that's a better branding campaign than, uh, you know, uh, some of the, the problems that Nike and, and uh, H&M have been having in China. Um, but, you know, there, there are an infinite number of supply chain questions and problems that could be solved by uh, synthesizing new materials in the United States. Another good reason for us to have a strategy when it comes to biotechnology is because other nations do have a strategy when it comes to biotechnology and, um, and they're making progress in ways that, um, that it's concerning for the U.S. that we might, uh, might be falling behind or really losing the lead that we had. Synthetic biology um, which you just mentioned was it was created in the U.S. Um, the ability to use biology uh, to engineer uh, to, to to provide engineering solutions to problems that um, was was a technology that that came about in the U.S. and was supported in, lo- in large part by government funding. And um, other nations have really do- dove in when it comes to, to synthetic biology. And they're also supporting the future workforce in ways that the U.S. is not doing as great a job at. Let's flip the question a little bit. Like, without a national strategy, what is, like, the worst case of, Amer- of Americans' role in the global bioeconomy 20 years from now? From my point of view, uh, there is a serious risk of not being a first mover in an, uh, a sector like biotechnologies, plural, uh, where there are so many things we don't yet know that we don't yet know, right? When I'm, when I'm thinking about what are uh, the strategically consequential industries of the future, I'm thinking about technologies that have um, a relatively short-term, uh, potentially precipitous impact uh, that will do things and unlock potential that we don't yet fully appreciate down the road. Uh, and which are capital intensive, right? Which are not confined to digital space where uh, the risk of failure is more than opportunity cost. You can sink billions into something uh, and lose. Uh, and that's really where we're playing very high stakes uh, in, in strategic technological competition with China. Those kinds of industries, quantum information, science, um, you know, uh, alternative sources of energy in terms of green technology, and of course, biotechnologies. Um, and so that is why this seems like a particularly salient industry to focus on, uh, because there are simply capabilities uh, that seem like they will be coming down the tracks in the next 10, 20 years uh, that I think it would behoove the United States uh, to be the first mover and the leader. In. Uh, we've seen ourselves fail time and time again in industries like telecommunications, industries like solar supply chains, uh, which Chinese companies now dominate. Uh, and I think that was a mistake to to kind of look the other way or or to believe that um, innovating and and spreading uh, a bunch of um, you know breakthrough technologies without necessarily commercializing them and bringing them to market uh, to believe that that strategy was going to pay off. This kind of comes to the central question of this, right? Is like, look, you're not going to be self reliant and leading in everything, 
And the one that you didn't mention, which is right. generally when people think about, oh, what are strategic, you know, what what are like the strategic industries of the future is dual use, right? And stuff like the solar industry, not super dual use. I mean, like, yeah, on the margin, like it'd be, you know, so you have some solar panels on a, on a, you know, cruiser or something, but um, the vast majority of that is not the end of the world. I think if, if the U S is, um, uh, if, if the U S is, is relying on other countries and then, and then it's sort of like the, the question of where you draw the line around, um, you know, if it's, if it's just a play of like, look, these are going to be big industries, which will drive a lot of, you know, growth and tax revenue. Um, that's a totally reasonable. And like, you know, you could have a small down payment as a nation and then sort of reap the benefits going, uh, down the road, like that's one that's one argument. But I guess I'm, um, the 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 question where where you start branching out from you know arms and space capabilities and uh you know like chips that go into your fighter jets, um, and start going further and further um away from like the core military technologies. It's it's an interesting question for me, um, you know where um, where you draw the line, or if it's not really a line, it's just kind of like a, like a, like a spectrum of to what extent the government should be, you know, supporting domestic industry and comfortable with international, uh, internationalization and reliance on, um, uh, on, on global, uh, supply chains and, you know, supply chains that run through, uh, uh, countries like China in particular. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think for people who are um, worried that the U.S. is going to fall behind in biotechnology, um, it's it's especially concerning because biology is such a comprehensive technology. It's not it's not like just solar panels that do a particular function. Bio is could be applied to so many different things, and to fall behind in such a foundational technology is. Uh, problematic for the economic security of the future. Also, militaries will need to use biology to do lots of different things that they might rely upon uh, petroleum-based chemistries, you know, now that they uh, should be branching out and not being so dependent on on petroleum for. So I think it's it's a degree of scale. I mean, biotechnology is just so much more useful, has so many more applications than uh, many other technologies and the co the consequences of falling behind, I think could be um, more drastic. And we see what happens when countries have not invested in the same way during COVID. For example, there, there are countries who were not at the front of the vaccine line uh, that because they did not have uh, a pharmaceutical industry. And we see how that affects the health of of people in those nations. So, I mean, it's, it's, um, having the technology within the U S is I think important for medical purposes, but other things too. I would add one, one corollary to this, which is, uh, if there's anything we've learned from experiences in other strategic sectors, it's that it's really, it's about more than technology and market share. It's about infrastructure. It's about building things. Uh, that can be repurposed in a crisis or uh, supply chains that are resilient to shock or facilities that are able to mode switch quickly. Um, you know, when, when we're talking about biotechnologies, it's not just a matter of who is supplying the service and who is buying it from whom. 
Uh, it's about where we are building ch like supply chains to procure genetic resources and material, who is sequencing that material and those kinds of uh, DNA, uh, where we're storing that information, uh, who is providing synthesis as a service, whether that's through physical hardware uh, or, or through some other means, um, and then who is ultimately able to make discoveries of novel molecules and create novel materials first. Um, and so it's not just a, a, a race to be the first in many of these applications, although I think that is important. It's also ensuring your long-term access and that none of those steps in bioprocessing can be weaponized later on. GD, let's talk a little bit about talent development uh, domestically and competing for it globally. How important is it and uh, what is and isn't being done and what more work needs to be done on this front? Yeah, we, we have a lot that we can do to increase our workforce for biotechnology and be smarter about it. Um, first of all, we train a lot of people in the United States. We, um, we in biotechnology, we have people who come over from all over the world to get graduate degrees, to get PhDs, to do postdoctoral fellowships at leading research institutions. And then we say goodbye and help them uh, leave the country and go somewhere else to start their business, to start their lab, to continue their research. And while that's great for them uh, to be able to go home, I would like it so that they could be encouraged to stay here in the United States and to be able to start a biotech company to continue their work here. And I think that um, if we are investing in people to train them, that we should make it easier for them to stay in the U.S. And that's kind of a no-brainer. A lot of people have said this, that we should you know, hand out green cards with PhDs. And that's, uh, I think, a good, a good idea. Then the other thing that we need to do is, is think about how we're educating students. Um, there are a lot of great programs out there, and I don't want to make generalizations about how we train students, um, because there are certainly a lot of, lot of scientists who, are, who have gotten a great education. But we're not doing enough to give students experiential learning in the laboratory and to teach them scientific principles and really get, their, get, get into the science and how exciting it can be. And uh, very often classes in college um, that people take to get into biology are like weeding out classes. You know, it's, it's trying to separate out the people who are going to take the MCATs and go to medical school and they'll memorize 10 phone books if you give them 10 phone books to memorize versus people who actually do not want to go to medical school, but want to go into science. And, um, and these are two different tracks that sometimes uh, go at cross purposes educationally. And so uh, giving the people who want to do science opportunities to excel, to work in laboratories, and to actually do research is uh, not something that's been a priority. And it has been a priority for other countries. Ryan, what's the Bayh-Dole Act and why does it matter? Yeah, Bayh-Dole is a, a cornerstone of um, the US IP regime as we know it today. So before 1980, uh, if the federal government had uh, input any money in developing like a patent or a copyright at a, a research institution or a university, uh, then the government reserved the first right to bring that innovation to market. Uh, but typically it did. 
And so a lot of innovations, uh, a lot of IP basically sat in the archives of uh, universities and research institutions, unable to be brought to market, unable to be commercialized. Uh, the Bayh-Dole Act changed that. It allowed um, individuals uh, who were working at research projects at universities, and, and it allowed universities themselves uh, to own the rights to IP that they generated using federal R&D dollars. Uh, and so there have been a tremendous number of products uh, and breakthroughs, including the mRNA vaccine that we're using the, to combat COVID-19, uh, that were products of federal R&D dollars uh, that were allowed to be brought to market through the Bayh-Dole Act. Um, so, you know, I think uh, uh, I wrote some notes in preparation for, for this uh, pod. Um, and former Undersecretary of Commerce, uh, Walter Copen, um, estimated that basically since it was passed in 1980, uh, Bayh-Dole has led to over a trillion dollars in economic growth and created more than 4 million jobs uh, as a result of creating basically just thousands of new startups out of a university IP. This is particularly important uh, because it has direct bearing on biotechnologies today and on, on the broader bioeconomy. Um, there are just so many uh, products or processes that have grown out of university research uh, that are now becoming startups based in Silicon Valley, but also based in Miami, based in Boston, in other uh, bioengineering hubs in Texas. Uh, and so this is directly creating a lot of the um, new uh, uh, innovations we're seeing in the field using uh, processes like CRISPR. So Ryan, in your paper, you run through some, you know, like metrics for grading the U.S. relative to the rest of the world on, um, uh, you know, how many companies are getting founded, how many PhDs are being created. It seems like you know, I'm a little less stressed out about this than I am about, you know, battery production or what have you. Um, what, what, um, uh, would you say are the emerging risks and, you know, overall rationale for the government getting, um, uh, more involved in, and, uh, and updating a, a, a regulatory and legal system, which like, you know, it seems like it's doing okay, uh, as well as, uh, spending more money in a industrial policy-esque fashion, um, towards the bioeconomy. Sure. So I, I, the bottom line uh, of Regenerate, the report I did for CNAS is, is yes, uh, we're doing all right, um, but there are actually some worrying signs on the wall, right? Uh, it's, it's not a feature of the report. The intent was not to, to fear monger, but if you look at organizations like the Beijing Genomics Institute, BGI, it's now a leading producer of COVID test kits. Um, Chinese vaccines like Sinovac and Sinopharm are really dominant in Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia. Uh, over the past three to five years, uh, compared to the United States, um, Chinese institutions have been producing way more uh, CRISPR-based plant genome editing studies. I think um, China now accounts for 40% uh, of publications uh, in that space globally. Uh, and so there are some things that are starting to change. And we already talked about the, the growing talent gap. Um, so yes, the United States seems to lead in market share. We have more biotechnology startups and enterprises. We have a pretty free intellectual property system that rewards innovators. These are all good things. Uh, but we also have seen the Chinese government put a premium on producing patents writ large and also in biotechnologies. Biotechnologies are a, a staple of the uh, 14.5 plan. They're one of the seven technologies that 
the Chinese government has said that they will focus on uh, during this next period. Um, and I, I think that China really is making progress. So I, I, my, my plea to your listeners uh, is to not be complacent with the current status of the United States. Uh, and more than this, uh, I fear that there are certain ways we could really run amok very quickly, whether that is uh, losing access to an important equipment uh, supply chain like steel for fermentation units, or uh, whether it is, uh, you know, uh, lying to ourselves about how innovative we truly are relative to China and, and suddenly falling behind in the production of information okay. or access to genomic data. Let's stay on steel for a second. I mean, steel? Uh, you know, it's, it's, that was the, that was the one paragraph in your, in your paper where I was like, man, we are, we are really, yeah. uh, expanding our universe of what is, um, uh, uh, you know, what is worthy of, of, of protection. If like, you know, if like the, what we're banging into vats to grow algae is something that is now considered a strategic resource, uh, uh, convince me that I'm wrong, Ryan. The strongest version of the argument for why you should care about steel uh, is if you really think, as I somewhat do, that biotechnology really will revolutionize the economy, that we're going to be growing tons of stuff that we will use to create concrete and mycelium for construction projects. And this is going to be the backbone of a lot of uh, goods and services in the next 20 years. We're going to need a large, large amount of space to grow all kinds of microbes, uh, and to to ferment stuff, sugars from from all the beets we're going to be eating, um, and and to do that you need tons of space, and specifically you need tons of steel fermentation units uh, to reuse over and over and over again, uh, and to put them everywhere. And, and and I will just say, you know, look at the the price of steel, which has increased fifty percent in the past five years. Look at long term trajectory of uh, U.S. steel production. The United States is a, a leading importer of steel. We import almost $20 billion worth of the stuff every year. China is the leading exporter. It's worth more than $30 billion. And U.S. domestic steel production has stayed flat at about 7 million uh, uh, tons of steel uh, for the past decade. But that's like because it's not economical to make steel in America. And the only reason we make it in the first place, right, is like, because we've had protectionist policy protecting, you know, our steel workers uh, for the past 30 years. So um, let me let me give you let me walk it back a little bit. OK, because I gave you, you know, the maximalist position. Like, honestly, yeah, we should import steel. Uh, the United States does not need to be a leading steel exporter um, or producer. I'm just saying we just need to figure out what our alternative supply chains ought to be. If we expect the economic relationship to continue to deteriorate and tariffs to be leveled, it's going to be harder to get materials like steel. Um, so, you know, Mao was also really into making steel. And I say that not as a like, like, yes, with a little bit of facetiousness in my voice, but also I think it, it it's a broader lesson on when you set targets on the wrong thing, you actually lead to a lot of awful distortion and you know the like the worst uh the worst example of this of course is the great leap forward where like they didn't even prioritize the right steel and people were like melting their pans and uh farm equipment into stuff that was completely worthless so um this is clearly not where america is uh, by any 
shape or means or even anything you said in your paper, Ryan. Um, but it goes to say that like you have to be careful with this stuff um, when you start getting the U.S. government um, more and more involved in industry because there are ways in which you can really distort uh, uh, incentives in the marketplace, which lead very far which which actually you know help help and uh, end up doing more um, more harm than good. Can I push back on on that a little bit though? I mean, yes, I I think you're you're right that the U.S. government, um, when it comes to biotechnology, uh, they they have not wanted in general to pick winners or losers here. Um, but you know there are some things with, that biology provides that um, that. The U.S. government is not going to get if they wait for the market to produce it, sure. and so they have um, taken pretty uh, aggressive measures to be able to have, for example, vaccines available for smallpox, um, which are now being applied uh, for monkeypox. They uh, and making sure that that companies that produce these types of um, of vaccines diagnostics are are available and are able to stay afloat. And and we're going to probably have to do the same thing with diagnostics because uh, we're going to need to be able to have diagnostic tests um, available when diseases emerge and not some months after they emerge. Let me let me hit you with a transition to safety from your Mao example. So I, I agree we should we should we shouldn't be creating steel mills in our backyards. And in fact, uh, in fact, we, one proposal out there uh, is to try to democratize access to things like DNA synthesis and to create, you know, garage level uh, biotechnology laboratories. It's a fine balance trying to concentrate access to really important equipment and materials, uh, and then also trying to like democratize access to the technology in general. It is hard. There was a great Wired article, this is years ago, but it stuck with me about talking to Nobel laureates in chemistry and how they got their start. And a lot of the, a lot of these Nobel laureates got their start by burning up their garages, you know, and they, they did really dangerous things and, and blew stuff up. And uh, we do not want that to happen with uh, the, the corollary with biology, but, um, but you do need to have some things that are, that are fun, that draw people in. And, and there are those things with biology that people can do things that, you know, it's more than just taking the DNA um, out, of, out of strawberries, and, and which uh, I assume both of you have tried to do that. It's a fun experiment you can do in your kitchen. Um, but things like, you know, there are things that one can do that are fun. And there are these community laboratories that, uh, that it can help people have that experience without, and the danger, you know, having a little bit of, of adult supervision, having access to equipment and skills, um, having a good group environment, but, um, but not, you know, not the danger. There's one in Baltimore called the Baltimore Underground Science Center or BUGS, and they do a lot of education for high schoolers, but also people in the community and they have talks and people get together for beers on Friday. It's, it's, I mean, it's a really great group of people, but they have really high biosafety standards and that's what you need um, to, to be able to educate people about biotechnology. So, you know, coming into that bio risk, um, how does the evolution of technology 
uh, sort of change the the risk matrix going forward? Biology can be a very powerful tool, and we can see how that that uh, that biology, like we've seen with COVID, that a virus, um, a biological package. Um, can um, there's always a big debate over whether viruses are alive or not. That was why I was hesitating and how I was describing viruses. But they, but see, like my training was, you know, was that they were not alive. They're like symbionts. But anyway, the, it doesn't matter. We all know it doesn't matter if they're alive or not. Viruses can cause a tremendous amount of damage. And we've seen this over the last couple of years. With COVID, we're going to see a lot more of these emerging infectious diseases in the years, especially um, because of climate change and and all kinds of um, terrible things that we're doing to our planet and environment. But the you know this is uh, these things don't just exist in nature. It is possible for people to manipulate these uh, bio, uh, biological organisms. Um, we have been very fortunate. In the in our history, that while there are nations that have poured a ton of money into biological weapons programs, we have not seen a whole lot of use of those programs. And so, um, for example, the Soviet Union and then Russia employed thousands of scientists to make weapons out of smallpox and anthrax, tularemia, and um, and they were ready to use them, but um, thankfully they didn't. The current American regulatory environment, what does it get right and wrong when it comes to fostering a strong bioeconomy? We have this process of regulating the production of new, uh, if you want to call them genetically modified or, or genetically engineered, biotechnology products as they enter the market, right? We have the coordinated framework for the regulation of biotechnology. It was created in 1984, been updated a few times since then. Uh, but basically, it is a, a fairly convoluted process that is co-managed by um, the USDA, the FDA, and the EPA, uh, which jointly regulate and approve new stuff. Uh, and I think, you know, my opinion is that it's it's good. We should make sure that, you know, when we sell uh, uh, products or when we try to um, plant crops that are engineered in some new fashion. Uh, that they're not going to poison the water supply or that they're not going to, uh, you know, spread like wildfire and become an invasive species. These are good things and we should worry about those impacts. However, um, one of the problems with the way this coordinated framework is implemented uh, is that it's extremely unclear um, about to whom uh, individual companies ought to report new products because you have all kinds of newly fashioned, you know, microbes that also produce chemicals that are used both for agriculture and for cooking. Uh, and so they're overlapping jurisdictions, number one. Uh, and number two, uh, there's a lot of concern with the process by which a product is made rather than the impact that it will have on human health or on the environment. Um, and so I think that, it, you know, a forward-looking approach would be process agnostic. Right, we we shouldn't really care how we arrive at the creation uh, of a new product, whether that be through CRISPR or th some through a, uh, through some other um, gene editing process. Right, what should matter is the the impact that it will actually make. Yeah, that was an attempt to overhaul the coordinated framework and make it a little bit more um, to to be more predictable to companies because you know um, it's it's 
a little simplistic to, to say say like companies don't want any regulation. That's not true. They want to know what they're going to be facing, right? They want to know what kind of regulation is going to be affecting their products and they can prepare for it. And it is very confusing to know which of these agencies is going to be primarily regulating your product right now. There was an attempt to overhaul the coordinated framework at the end of the second Obama administration. And I think they thought that they were going to have a little more time for that process. And, um, and they didn't. And so they tried to wrap things up really quickly and it didn't, it just left the job not completely done. What is a Manhattan project for biology? I don't know if that's like the best analogy because, you know, um, we would like to, I, I think people talk to use that sort of terminology when it comes to like making a COVID vaccine, you know, a focused effort, throw all the money at it. Why use, you know, lead when gold will do sort of, you know, everything, no, no expense is too high. And if that's what you mean, then I think that's a good, uh, a, that could be a, um, so a good analogy, but, um, Manhattan Project, considering it was, you know, focused on developing a, a pretty terrible weapon, um, I don't think that that's uh, really applicable to uh, to biology. Everybody I used that phrase with uh, complained about it and said basically exactly what Gigi has just said. But here's, you know, here's my defense of a, uh, not actually a defense, but like for some perspective, right? The Manhattan Projects employed what, like 130,000 people and cost the equivalent of $20 billion today. And we just gave two of those to the semiconductor industry. So I, I do think that that's the level that we should be playing at in terms of the amount of money and the significance that we attach to uh, the problems that biotechnology can solve. But I also think that we, you know, we can be more um, targeted and strategic in the way uh, that we devote that capital uh, and to which applications, right? I actually think, and you know, I'm going to get criticized for this, but I'm ready. Uh, a pretty interesting model that we could possibly learn some lessons from uh, are mega projects that the Chinese government is undertaking and developing, right? Some proof of concept, flashy thing. Uh, you know, I'm thinking, we, you know, why not try to build a city block from mycelium or try to uh, uh, print some concrete structure using concrete that is uh, coming from microorganisms and, and generating itself, right? Something to attract, to, to number one, inspire the public imagination, but number two, continue to attracting and sustaining venture capital interest in various uh, emerging technologies. Gigi, can you talk a little bit about some of the similarities and differences between American and Chinese approaches to biosafety? I think um, China has emulated U.S. approaches to biosafety for decades now in a lot of ways. Like, for example, um, early on when genetic engineering became a thing that we did, we had these review committees that were based in research institutions to review experiments and to uh, give their blessing, look over biosafety protocols. Um, decide which kind of experiments need to be in what kind of containment. And that system was emulated by China and many other countries as well. And so, you know, the U.S. in being a leader in biotechnology also helped promulgate their system of regulation throughout the world as well. 
Um, and that's another good reason to to keep our foot on the gas, you know, and, and still lead in this area. Um, there's, I, um, I have not, I mean, I've visited labs in China and India, Malaysia, you know, Benin, Togo, all over the world. Um, and, and I, a lot of the, the, the international standards are pretty similar. There is definitely, um, a variety of supply differences you know a lot of um a lot of places do not have access to the same materials um but i have i didn't see a big difference in approach to biosafety that's not the case everywhere in the world um but i didn't see a big difference in the approach to biosafety between china and the u.s ryan what recommendations do you have for us if we look at each of these four resources equipment personnel information and capital there are some clear priorities uh, which might not stand out in the report as it's written. But the, you know, first of all is personnel. We need more talented people in this country uh, to be not just PIs and work at tenure track research positions at universities, uh, but to fill jobs that don't yet exist in the bioeconomy and their presence uh, will create a pressure to create them. And so I think that Congress should, first of all, uh, vote to codify this recent expansion uh, in STEM OPT the optional practical training program. Um, we recently significantly increased the number of people who were allowed uh, to stay on STEM OPT and extended the duration from two to three years. I think that's great. Why not institutionalize it, uh, which would take an act of Congress? And I, I think that's what Congress should do. Uh, I think in terms of capital, um, we need more money. Uh, you know, I feel like like Mona Lisa Saperstein from Parks and Rec, like money, please. But honestly, that is what we need to sustain uh, uh, progress in biotechnologies. Um, and so I, I say in the report that Congress should authorize significant increases in the budgets of tech incubators, um, like the Small Business Innovation Research Program, uh, which is run by a lot of federal agencies. Um, but you know, why not give more money to USDA, FDA, EPA, NIH uh, to, to do more uh, with their current funding? Um, and then also defense applications through like DARPA and NQTEL. The last uh, one I'll throw at you, at least for now, is um, about the way we handle genomic data and information. Uh, this is something that is of incredible importance to the Chinese government. Um, my colleagues at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology uh, are working on a lot of uh, research right now about exactly what that looks like. But I will just say, I think that in the United States, uh, the National Institutes of Health um, should create a, a gene bank that is really equipped uh, for 21st century genomic research. We have a gene bank. Uh, it's updated maybe monthly. The user interface is terrible. Uh, and the process by which people can access that information and the contents of what's currently in that bank uh, are just not adequate. Uh, I think one clear change, for example, uh, could be to try to open up a lot of the data that the Food and Drug Administration holds right now as a result of reviewing so many applications for new products and so many tests that it conducts itself. I think researchers should be allowed to access some of that, uh, at least at universities and at trusted research institutions, if not the private sector. Gigi, what are some of the dumbest things you've heard people propose to do with, uh, um, uh, with the American bioeconomy? Ryan's uh, uh, Marshall Plan... Uh, Excuse me, Ryan's Manhattan Project accepted, of course. Well, 
I'm just thinking back to, I think most people recognize that the bioeconomy is important. And I think what they, what they don't understand is they don't have um, enough scientific expertise to understand, to have a good vision for how consequential it can be, and also to make good decisions. So my big rec- recommendation is that there needs to be more scientific expertise in leadership and not just not just people who are like head of NIH, because of course you're going to have a scientific leader that's, you know, that's head of uh, NIH, but people who are like in the White House, not just do, dealing with biotechnology, but that have this expertise in their background. What I mean is that people who are training to be national security professionals need to have a lot more biology in their education. And uh, they need to understand what it is because it's going to be such an important part of our future. And I think um, bad decisions or bad uh, suggestions come from this lack of expertise. And I think I've heard just about every bad suggestion um, when it comes to COVID in the last several years. And so um, it's really hard to pick just one thing that I've heard, but I think it comes from, you know, a lot of things that I've heard come from smart people who are smart about lots of different things, but not about biology. And, um, and so when you, when you lack these fundamentals, um, you're, you're not going to, you know, be smart in that area. Is there, is there like some, is there like a particular way in which people are wrong or do you think there's something about folks being more over overconfident about biology because like you know we're humans and like i don't know we take drugs as opposed to semiconductors where folks maybe have a better sense of just how confusing and foreign electrical engineering is to um anything they've ever encountered before where where do you think all that where do you think the overconfidence comes from gg or do you think it's just an endemic thing I think there's a few things um, that are that are a problem. I don't know if if people just under assume that they don't understand um, a semiconductor. They know it's a thing that like that they just uh, they're they're going to put in the too hard box um, and not worry about it. Um, whereas biology touches our lives a little bit more directly, and so people have stronger opinions about it, um, even if they're wrong. So I I think sure. um you know some basic things that like microorganisms uh grow they replicate um these are uh that um people kind of miss that um that biology is different than other other engineering disciplines um because they you know biology is well the other thing that people don't understand is that there's a lot we don't know and and people think that you know we are a lot more advanced than um, than people were a hundred years ago when dealing with nineteen eighteen flu, and that is true. But there's still a whole lot of biology out there that we are just learning about, and um, and I think that people miss how much uh, we have yet to discover. Ryan and Gigi, I close every show with a song. Do you have a biotech song? Up your sleeve, by any chance? I was thinking, and I don't have one. I dropped you a link to some Chinese rap that I like, but that's it. I don't know. I've just okay. been like having Beyonce's Renaissance like on repeat, and I can't think of anything that's. I mean, there's a lot of like biologically adjacent topics, but not a lot of this. Fair enough. Uh, Ryan and Gigi, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thank you.
Thank you for having us. Thanks, Jordan. This war is for Satellius, Cook is for Chopper, Chopper, Sample, Yuha Jim, Muzan, Wushan, Dowley, Stadi Lea, Hayo, something good, something Kuso, Zicha, Shang, Ching, Su, Ufa, Shah, Pisan Yang, Wasili, Hui, Gun, Howder, Suan, Mizata, Lehua, Jolan, Chi, Gun, Zauder, Zubu, Zami, Lehua, Haiko, Yiz, Gun, Zauder, Susan, Chifu, Gabori, Tai, Zibik, Gun, Yao, Yer, Oyong, Ardo, Fasha, May, Don't let Zan, Don't let Chi, Trading Longer, Ming, Natsula, Jobi, Shia, Long, Tedi, Chia, Shi, Da, Tonsa, Hai, Yo, Yang, Woman, Bujin, Lango, Shachi, Fong, Hai, Yo, Lang, Yi, Shia, Zaka, Kako, Go, To, Rap, Shia, Zaka, Time, Sang, Han, Woverse, Tela, Tema, Bang, Wall, Tell, Ya, Bishu, Fang, Man, Baba, Zan, Tan, Gim, Wushong, Di, Hoshi, Chopper,